0: Before we begin this episode, let's do a quick thought experiment. Think about Belgian food. Mmm, imagine the aroma of a warm stew cooked with beer in a centuries-old tavern in Bruges. Or perhaps you're thinking about the crispy, warm crunch of frites, hot chips cooked in goose fat being eaten out of a paper cone on a cold Antwerp day. Maybe you've imagined dining in a multiple Michelin star restaurant, enjoying mussels in Brussels, or perhaps you're just visualising a plate of waffles covered in chocolate and cream. Okay, so now, think about Dutch food. Yeah, I know, just try. I'm going to guess that that was a lot more difficult than thinking about Belgian food and if you could think of anything at all it was either something deep fried beyond recognition or it was cheese or a fish pickled in its own juices or just a plate of meat and potatoes. Culinary culture in the Low Countries has changed greatly over the course of history. Geographical, social and economic factors have all contributed to the availability of food at different times in the region, as well as to the traditions and customs surrounding food preparation and enjoyment. For most of history, there was little distinction between food in the Netherlands and food in Belgium. Today, however, Belgian cuisine is renowned and celebrated both internationally and domestically, and has been said to produce food in the quantity of the Germans and the quality of the French. Dutch food, on the other hand, is recognised as being far more simple and bland. Has anybody ever come home on a Friday night and said, should we go out for some Dutch? Probably not. More likely, the only time you'll hear the words go Dutch around a dining table will be when discussing how to split the bill rather than referring to the type of food you're going to eat. So, in this episode, we are going to explore the history of culinary culture and traditions in the Low Countries and see how they've been kneaded over time into what they are today. For this recipe, we will require one small landmass populated by culturally distinct and diverse peoples, one extremely long period of time stretching back to prehistory. that's time T-I-M-E not T-H-Y-M-E, Water, a lot, a pinch of religious conflict, one great dollop of significant economic development, don't hold back, essence of commerce, exploration and colonialism, and add salt as needed. Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website, celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. There is very little information about the culinary traditions of prehistoric people in the Low Countries, meaning that most of what we know is based on conjecture. They must have subsisted on what they could gather and hunt, which would have been berries, nuts, and fruits, as well as wild vegetables, tubers, and roots, such as the ancestors of cabbage, sprouts, and asparagus. With the abundance of rivers in the region, fish and water birds would have been an important source of protein. As grains made their way into the Low Countries some 7,000 or so years ago, people began to farm around the area of Limburg. Wheat and flax were introduced, but rye and barley were easier to grow in most regions. Other vegetables like legumes and leek were also cultivated. The Low Countries then became a leaky landscape in more ways than one. Animal husbandry was introduced, and eventually, cattle, sheep, and pigs were all being farmed as well. Dwelling mounds, or as they're called in Dutch, terpen, are these large man-made hills, and they began to be constructed around 500 BCE in Friesland to keep farmers and their cows and other animals away from the ever-encroaching tides. This means that beef, pork, mutton, as well as milk, butter, and animal fat have been staple elements of all culinary practices in the Low Countries, for a very very long time the expansion of the roman empire into northern europe brought northwestern germanic tribes into contact with the cultures of the latin world tacitus in writing his famous germania said of their dining practices quote their food is plain wild fruit fresh game and curdled milk they satisfy their hunger without any elaborate cuisine or appetizers But they do not show the same self control in slaking their thirst. Almost certainly, there would have been regional variations in how these people cooked their meat or made their curdled milk, otherwise known as cheese. Unfortunately, nobody knows for sure. Medieval low-country societies were, like the rest of Europe, greatly defined by religion. As such, the diet of the low Countries was heavily influenced by Christianity for over a thousand years. Due to superstitions, there were strict taboos about what was acceptable to eat on certain days of the week and on special days of the calendar. On fasting days, it was permitted to eat only one meal, during which it was forbidden to eat meat. By the reckoning of the people of the Middle Ages, meat referred to the flesh of animals which lived on the ground. These restrictions meant that there were up to 150 days a year on which you were expected to fast and on which fish was the main source of protein the people ate. Fish, in these times, was understood to be anything that came from water, This, therefore, could include seals, whales, and beavers, as well as different types of water birds. Freshwater fish was abundant. It was cheap and available, the most common species being trout, whitefish, pike, shad, eel, and lamprey. Eventually, however, overfishing in the rivers meant the fish had to be cultivated, or people had to venture into deeper waters. By the turn of the first millennium CE, people from the Low Countries were fishing in the sea, off the coast, usually for cod and herring. Diminishing supply and continual demand meant that fish could be extremely expensive and was more often found on the tables of the religious and secular wealthy. In the Cambridge World History of Food, Annika van Otterlo states that the tables of the bishops of Utrecht were a pescatarian's paradise, and would consist of 20-ish lavish dishes of fish. According to studies done by Richard Hoffman, fish made up only around 3-5% of the total calories consumed at the time, but cost up to one-fifth of the budget for food. As the low countries rapidly urbanized from the 1100s onwards, they linked into trading networks across the continent, and some of the most important things traded were foodstuffs, Including fish. Carrying fish long distances in the Middle Ages was difficult because it went off quickly. Fresh fish even struggled to make it to the local markets before going off. As the old Dutch proverb goes, Hasten en vis blijven maar drie dagen fris. House guests and fish only stay fresh for three days. Very low standards for freshness in the Middle Ages. Different preservation techniques included smoking, drying, salting, and pickling. In the Low Countries, the method for curing fish was usually salting and then packing the fish into barrels of brine. Around the turn of the millennium, though, fishmongers in Denmark had figured out a process called giving, which could be applied to a particular fish, the noble herring. This entailed removing all of the entrails of the herring, except for a tiny organelle called the pyloric KK which would then emit an enzyme that helped to further preserve the fish. The final product, tonharing, became one of the most valuable trade products from the North. Around the late 14th century, this technique had migrated into Holland and Zeeland. Improving upon this innovation, Dutch shipbuilders then created a special type of ship, which came to be known as the herring Base. This practically served as a floating gibbing factory. Dutch fishermen could then stay at sea for much longer, not needing to get their daily catch to the mongers on dry land. By doing the preservation on board, they could catch fish, gib them, and then just keep catching more fish. When they did eventually return to shore weeks later, they would bring back literal boatloads of ready-for-market ton herring. Thus, around the turn of the 14th into the 15th centuries, the herring became a product by which the history of low-country cuisine could rightfully plant a flag. Today, herring prepared in this fashion is still popular and very much associated with the Netherlands, now being called Hollandsenueur despite the technique coming from Denmark, and the fish not being caught anywhere near Holland. For the common classes in the Middle Ages, the most important food item was grain. Like we said earlier, rye, wheat, barley, and oats were all farmed in the Low Countries, From about the 10th century onwards, however, with the aforementioned urbanization, the population soon could not be sustained by locally grown grains. The Dutch looked north, and the trade connections to the north, and particularly in the Baltics, meant that this region became the source of most of the grain eaten in the Low Countries for centuries to come. Grains could be used to make porridge, pancakes, and bread. Porridge and pancakes were simple to make, needing only a fire and a hot top. Bread, on the other hand, was expensive because it required more steps in its production. If you worked the land, it was usually for a lord who owned it and would take a large portion of your harvest. If you wanted to turn what little grain was left over into bread, it would first have to be ground into flour before being mixed with yeast, salt, and water, and then baked. The necessary machinery... Such as mills and ovens, were also controlled by the lords, however, and they could and usually would exercise their so called banal rights, which forced their peasants to use their equipment, at a cost, of course. This was clearly a great system for the lord, but not so great for the peasants. If instead of living in the countryside, you lived in a town, you would have to go to a baker for your bread which obviously also cost money. For these reasons, bread, like meat and fish, was far more regularly eaten by the wealthy. Those who could afford to eat it, however, would do so alongside every dish, as frequently as they could. Another thing people were baking in the Low Countries at this time were cookies, which in the English-speaking world are called biscuits everywhere, except for America, which shows off its Dutch roots by calling biscuits cookies. Cookies became a big deal in many different places in the Low Countries. In 1477, the city of Diefenter made regulations on the Baker's Guild pertaining to the making of cookies. Water must not be added to honey, unless it was a certain type of honey, which then had to have a certain amount of pepper and water added to it. Cookies must measure an old cubit, which was 68 centimetres. That's a big cookie. By the 1550s, cookies had become so synonymous with Amsterdam that people from there were sometimes known as cook-eaters, cookie-eaters. I had a cookie in Amsterdam once. I'm sure it was good, but I can't really remember it very well. On a typical day, those in the low classes would eat three times and sometimes more, depending on how much energy was required to do the physical labor demanded of them. Breakfast would consist of a porridge of grains. Cheese, bread, and butter could then accompany the larger meals, or be munched on as a snack in between. For those without access to an oven, and for whom bread was a luxury, pancakes were the substitute, possibly explaining why they are still today a common dish in the Low Countries. Cheese and butter would never be served on bread together. Another old Dutch proverb goes "Zeifel op zafel is het werk van de which translates directly as "dairy on dairy is the work of the devil." But in a more satisfyingly rhyming and modern form could be something like "Be ever wary of dairy on dairy." Commoners from serfs to comfortable artisans and merchants would eat at least one hot meal a day, The standard dish for the lower classes across Western Europe for centuries was something called pottage, or in Dutch, either potspate or ketelkost. Because it's fun to say, we will stick to the English term pottage. It was a combination of basically whatever you could get your hands on and chuck in a pot, typically a mix of peas, beets, tubers, one or many grains, and a liquid, which could be water, beer, or milk. Sounds... lecker. The thick and mushy stewy soup would be cooked in a pot over a fire on a continuous basis, ladled out whenever it was mealtime, and topped up accordingly. If you could afford it, you might also throw some meat, fish, bone, or lard in there. Here's a million-dollar idea. Make a new restaurant in a hipster neighbourhood and call it the Pottage Cottage. As you might imagine, upper classes were able to branch out a bit beyond meagre pottage. One of the most enduring legacies of early Low Country dining was the extravagant feasts of the Valois Dukes of Burgundy, who ruled the Low Countries for nearly a 100 years until 1482. Through a combination of diplomatic skill and a lot of luck, these French Dukes have managed to become some of the most powerful and influential rulers in Europe, Their courts, which were mostly in today's Belgium, were renowned for splendor and ostentatious displays of wealth, patronage of the arts, and great banquets. One of the most bombastic parties of the 1400s was the so-called Feast of the Pheasant, organized by Duke Philip the Good to announce his intention of going on a crusade. The affair, which could be watched from a viewing gallery by the general common public, included 28 musicians bursting out of a giant pie, tables decorated with moving sculptures of animals, castles, and model ships floating on miniature lakes. There was a real-life lion and a life-sized robotic elephant, which was ridden by a cross-dressing courtier. According to said cross-dressing courtier, Olivier de la Marche, each course consisted of 48 different types of food, which were brought to the tables by, quote, chariots decorated with gold and azure, end quote. The Dutch term, Burgondis, Burgundian, still refers to extravagance and grandeur, especially when referring to lavish types and amounts of food. The oldest Dutch-slash-Flemish-language cookbook comes from slightly after the Burgundian period. It was written by Thomas van der Note and published in Brussels around 1514. It is called Ein Notable Buchen van Kokeren, A Notable Little Book of Cookery, which is at once an extremely confident yet humble title. Its target audience was the cooks of extremely wealthy people and its recipes were designed for their banquets and festivities, such as weddings or promising to go on a crusade. In total, there are 175 recipes in the book, almost all of which include the expensive ingredient of sugar. Many different food items are included in the notable Little Book of Cookery. There is a heavy emphasis on sauces and jellies, one of the most common being chimenean a sweet and sour sauce spiced with cumin, thickened with breadcrumbs, and loaded with hard-boiled egg yolks. The very first recipe is for a vit bruvette, a white sauce, perfect to serve with capon, which is a castrated rooster. For those following along at home, if you don't have a castrated rooster handy, you can just use a regular chicken or even some veal. The meat recipes use a lot of different birds like the aforementioned capon as well as pigeon, peacocks, swans, heron, blackbirds, and geese. Pork makes many appearances but there are also recipes for oxen, venison, fresh beef, rabbit, and veal. There are recipes for pies and pastries including one of the oldest recorded recipes for apple pie. Perhaps the most curious baked dish is a sparrow pastry that does not include any sparrow, but rather beef or veal with cheese and saffron. Saffron actually makes many appearances, almost always being recommended to give the dish color. Other luxury spices are likewise employed, such as cinnamon and nutmeg. Almost every fish known to Western Europeans is also mentioned in the recipes. Every piece of every animal was used in all the dishes. Here is our attempt to translate one of the recipes, chosen at random. Shockingly, this following pike and eel with a pea and pike liver mash has not become a classic modern Dutch dish. Quote, Cut the eel and the pike in pieces, leaving the pike's liver aside. Fry the pieces in a pan or a pot. When they are cooked enough, add a pea puree. Separately, Cut the liver of the pike extremely finely and push it through a sieve. Add ginger and saffron to give it colour. Add this to the fried fish bits and let it all steam. Add salt as needed. End quote. Whew. feel like you might need a lot of salt to stomach that one. European food history was set on a new trajectory with the so-called Columbian Exchange, when Portuguese and Spanish ships began moving between Eurasia, Africa, and the Americas in the late 1400s. Spanish ships brought foodstuffs back to Europe, which had previously only been found in the Americas, such as potatoes, tomatoes, corn, various types of beans, chili, squash, and pumpkins, amongst much else. The Low Countries became an integral part of Portuguese and Spanish trade networks in the mid-16th century, when they came under the rule of the Spanish king, Philip II. Philip's autocratic and fervently Catholic rule was very unpopular in many parts of the Low Countries, which at this time were a veritable pottage of Protestant movements. By treating his new subjects as heretics, as well as introducing heavy new taxes, Philip really turned the heat up in history's kitchen and he ended up baking himself a general Dutch revolt against Spanish imperial rule. In January 1579, Holland, Zeeland, Utrecht, Groningen, and Gelders signed the Union of Utrecht, which was essentially a declaration of independence and they were soon joined by other cities and regions stretching from Brabant and Flanders in the south to Friesland in the north. Responding to this revolt, the Spanish army occupied most of Flanders and a large chunk of Brabant. What resulted was a mass exodus of people from this southern area to the north. But along with the Inquisition, the Spanish army also brought with them new culinary traditions, such as tapas-style dishes, like the croqueta, These became and remain one of the most popular starter dishes in Belgian and Dutch restaurants and bars. The Spanish croqueta, usually filled with jamón and bechamel, was at some point instead filled with an already popular local veal ragout. Typical of the Low Countries, by now intertwined with the spice trade, they also chucked in some nutmeg. Lo and behold, the ancestor to the mouth-watering yet also mouth-burning, bitterball was born. Since then, bitterballer have taken their place next to the croquette and are available in every eatery across the Low Countries. By the middle 17th century, the northern Low Countries had evolved into the new Dutch Republic, and it had become incredibly wealthy and firmly entrenched in global trade networks. The so-called Muder Nechoti, or Mother of All Trade, was access to the grain from the Baltics, which Amsterdam was able to acquire, and in so doing, became the grain staple of Europe. Wheat was thus widely available, and famines became rarer as a result. In addition to this, Dutch traders and seafarers in Asia were able to secure a monopoly access to spices, things like nutmeg, cinnamon, pepper, and saffron, which were used in the notable Little Book of Cookery. Now that Dutch ships were bringing them back from Asia in bulk, these spices were within the reach of the lower classes. Porridge and pottage were still the go-to dishes, but now different flavours could be introduced by those who could afford them. If you take a look at still-life paintings by Dutch masters from the 17th century, you will often see tables packed with all kinds of delicacies, from fresh fruits and vegetables, fishes, crabs, lobsters, prawns, meats, cheeses, and baked goods. Because of their commercial success, the Dutch people in the 17th century were in general among the most well-fed in Europe. Perhaps the most unique feature of the Netherlands during this era was that being a republic, there was a comparatively large and relatively well-off middle class, all those merchants and traders, compared to the rather tiny and often much more broke aristocracy. During the heyday of the Dutch Republic, the de facto state religion was Protestant Calvinism, which is typically seen as strict, austere, and decidedly non-extravagant. Historian Jan de Vries, however, suggests that the teachings of Calvin did not require one to eschew luxury altogether, but rather to avoid a, quote, culture of appearances, end quote. Which is to say, don't use luxurious items to project an image of yourself as being in a higher station of life than you really are. Basically, Galvin would have a lot of not very nice things to say about pretty much every single Instagram influencer on the planet. An English ambassador to the Republic, William Temple, wrote that people would spend their money on, quote, things not so transitory or so prejudicial to health and to business as the constant excesses and luxury of tables, nor perhaps altogether so vain as the extravagant expenses of clothes and attendance. End quote. One Dutch journalist suggests that it was this culture of moderation which ensured that the sex appeal was taken out of the Dutch kitchen, which is pretty funny when you consider that the best-known pairing of rhyming Dutch words suggests something else entirely. This... Aversion to the culture of appearances is basically the polar opposite to the aforementioned Burghondis culture. The North came under the influence of Calvinism, while the South remained majority Catholic and mostly under imperial rule. Burghondis culture, therefore, also came to carry connotations of a Southern identity in the Low Countries. According to this line of thought, the culinary differences that would emerge between Belgium and the Netherlands would reflect the differing values of things like moderation and lavish celebration. In the 18th century, the wealth gap between rich and poor grew significantly in the Netherlands as the bourgeoisie garnered most of the wealth, the middle class shrank and more people fell into poverty. French influence on culinary methods and styles came to be impressed upon the social elite, introducing things like silver or pewter tableware, as opposed to the more common but less impressive copper or brass. Items such as the fork became obligatory to their eating traditions. According to historian Weicher Philema, the ways in which people sought to imitate French fanciness was seen by the lower classes as a disintegration of morals which hearkened the impending downfall of the nation. Whether a declining moral fortitude was impacting the nation or not, for the lower classes this period of diminishing wealth had real and devastating effects. Food shortages returned and were often accompanied by rampant epidemics that affected the poorest most of all. Those who were struggling to eat came to depend on one of those products that had come into Europe hundreds of years earlier with the Colombian exchange, the potato. Before long, the humble spud became a staple in food preparation for lower classes in both the Netherlands and Belgium. By the 1790s, the economic star of the Netherlands was well and truly waning, French forces invaded and occupied the entire Low Countries in 1795, and in 1806, Napoleon created the Kingdom of Holland, installing his younger brother, Louis, as the king. This only lasted a few years before Napoleon simply annexed all of the Low Countries into his empire. When the French occupation began, the international commercial institutions that Amsterdam had hosted for 200 years shifted to London. Napoleon's defeat led to the creation of the modern Kingdom of the Netherlands, which, when it was brought into existence in 1815, included what is today's Belgium. After 15 years of this arrangement, the Belgians went into their own rebellion against the rule of the Dutch, suggesting that the near two and a half centuries of separation had instilled definite understandings of distinct identities. They declared their independence in 1830, and had it officially recognised by everyone, in 1839. Following its independence, Belgium created a sense of national culinary tradition, in a way that, simply put, the Netherlands did not. In general, the ingredients and means of preparing foods did not actually differ that much between the two countries, but the culture of how and where to eat did. According to food and culture historian, Peter Scholliers eating out at restaurants was an identifiable trait of Belgian society from the 1840s, yet did not start happening in the Netherlands until 1890, and only really became a socially accepted indulgence in the 1960s. Belgium, in effect, had a 120-year head start in what is a modern culinary tradition today, going out for a feed. There were more professional chefs in Belgium, and they had a much longer time to take the general heritage of cuisine in the region and entangle it with their new national identity. To this day, Belgium still has more top-ranked restaurants than the Netherlands, not even taking into account that the population is two-thirds the size of their northern neighbors. Everywhere in the Low Countries, people still frequently use items like Leek, endives, asparagus, horse, rabbit, mussels, eel, and many of the other items found in the notable little book of cookery. But new foodstuffs, and particularly potatoes, were of the utmost importance. Whether mashed, baked, or fried, people's survival depended on potatoes. Those days are long gone, but the spud still holds a beloved role in both Belgian and Dutch cuisine. The hot chip... Or frit is omnipresent, and although erroneously called French fries in other parts of the world, they are in the Low Countries often called Flums of Fritz, Flemish fries. In the 1840s, consecutive harvests of potato were ruined by disease, leading to famine and other major social health issues. Around this time, Europe was also undergoing convulsions of parliamentary movements and revolutions. Feeding the hungry, poor masses often landed on the shoulders of charities and private philanthropists. A man named Benjamin Thompson invented a type of thin soup, which was basically a more potato-based and watery version of pottage, but which became widely used to try to get some nutrition to the people. When Vincent van Gogh lived in Nuenen in Brabant and wanted to depict the harsh realities of peasant life in the 1880s, He painted a family of ugly farmers eating potatoes which they had probably just pulled out of the ground themselves. The Potato Eaters is by no means beautiful, but perhaps the honesty in its depiction is why it has become one of the most celebrated works by Van Gogh. In the final winter of the Second World War, between 1944 and 1945, the northern parts of the Netherlands suffered a famine which would become known to history as the Hunger Winter. After Allied troops landed on the continent during the Normandy invasions in June 1944, a massive retreat of German forces saw them moving back to the border to regroup. In the first few weeks of September, Much of Belgium was liberated and plans were quickly devised for a combined land and parachute assault on the Netherlands which would see the Allies cross the Rhine River and secure a direct route to go to Berlin. Unlike the D-Day invasion, however, this attack, known as Operation Market Garden, was a logistical failure which did not secure the required bridgehead over the Rhine River at Arnhem. What resulted was a partial liberation of the Netherlands, with the northern part of the country remaining stuck under Nazi control until May 1945. As retribution against a strike undertaken by rail workers who were supporting the Allied effort, German authorities stopped all food from being sent to the Netherlands. This embargo, coupled with one of the coldest winters ever recorded, meant that throughout that winter of 44 45 Much of the population starved. In desperation, people resorted to eating whatever they could. During these months, the most common sources of nutrition were sugar beets, tulip bulbs, and potato peels. In the cities, it got so bad that both stray and house cats were at risk of their lives. In 1945, the food agencies in The Hague and Amsterdam put out nutritional information about tulip bulbs. Quote, Chulip bulbs can be used for food. They have a high content of carbohydrates. Depending on which variety, they have a slight tang. They are more or less mealy, which is why it is not possible to provide the weight of the exact amount of bulbs for some recipes. End quote. This was then followed by a recipe. Quote, soup with tulip bulbs, one liter water, one onion, four or five tulip bulbs, aroma, salt. One teaspoon of oil, surrogate curry powder. Chop the small onion and fry with the oil and the surrogate curry to a light brown. Add water and aroma. Bring the soup to the boil. Grate the cleaned tulip bulbs above the boiling liquid. Cook a little longer while stirring and finish with some salt. Interestingly, the hardships of the Hunger Winter provided Dutch scientist Willem Karel Dicker With a large-scale case study which led to him discovering the cause of celiac disease during the 1930s dicker had begun investigating the effects of removing wheat from people's diets in order to treat celiac disease after speaking to a mother who had told him that taking bread out of her child's diet had resulted in him no longer suffering rashes because of the lack of bread during the hunger winter Many children who suffered from celiac disease actually began to improve in their condition, and when bread was reintroduced into their diets after the famine, their symptoms immediately got worse again. Subsequent research discovered the role which gluten plays in triggering the disease, and Dicker helped develop a gluten-free diet as treatment. In recognition of his work, in 1958, Dicker won the first ever gold medal from the Dutch Society for Gastroenterology, who then named the award after him. Food in the Netherlands changed greatly after the war. Immigration from Asia, which had already established strong Asian communities in the Netherlands from the 19th century, increased when Indonesia gained its independence from Dutch rule. Indonesian restaurants soon became established in Dutch cities and towns, and the rice tafel, a set menu of varying dishes, arguably became the first modern national dish. Another incredibly important food item that came out of this was pindersaus, peanut sauce, the glue that holds Dutch festive dinners together. Decolonization also led to an influx of Surinamese and other Caribbean immigrants, who themselves drew on a mix of Afro-Caribbean and Indian cultures. Words like roti and samosas entered the lexicon of Dutch cuisine. In the 70s and 80s, foreign labour initiatives by the Belgian and Dutch governments brought Algerian, Moroccan and Turkish cuisines into the national foodscapes. In the Netherlands, the snack bar took its place as among the most important food institutions in the country, providing relief for countless drunk people in the early hours of the morning. People could now pick up snacks like croquettes, souffles, and other deep-fried goodness that tastes delicious with or after beer. After the war, food companies also started mass-producing croquettes and their bastard descendant. Bitterbullo, all of which became mainstays at snack bars, along with kebabs, satays with pinda sauce, wraps, and more. One of the recent additions is the now famous cap salon, which literally means hairdresser. In 2003, a local Rotterdam hairdresser called Nathaniel Gomez, originally from Cape Verde, walked into the Schwama snack bar El Aviva and asked for all of his favorite things in one container. What he received was an aluminum takeaway dish with a layer of hot chips, a layer of shawarma meat, and a layer of chowder cheese. This had all been placed into the oven until the cheese was completely melted, and then a salad topping of iceberg lettuce had been put on top and dressed with garlic sauce and sambal, an Indonesian hot sauce. Gomez was enthralled enough that he would regularly order it, legend saying that he would just call up and say, Capsalon. Other customers at El Aviva copied him, and a new national dish was born. So as we have seen, there is a long history of culinary traditions in the Low Countries. For a very long time, class divisions and wealth status put limitations on what people ate on a day-to-day basis, and there was little variation between everyday commoner cuisine throughout all of Europe. At the end of the Middle Ages, the Protestant and mercantile Dutch Republic encouraged the growth of a middle class, and people could access what had previously been exclusive, elitist ingredients. Furthermore, the split between the Northern and Southern Low Countries began to mold distinctly identifiable cultural differences between what would become the two modern nations— Of Belgium and the Netherlands. This has often, yet simplistically, been expressed in the juxtaposition of festive Catholic Burkhondis lavishness and the austere Protestantism, explained as an aversion to a culture of appearances. When modern Belgian independence occurred in the 1830s, dining out soon after became popular, whereas in the Netherlands, Eating at home was the norm and continued to be so while going to a restaurant was seen as indulgent. During the war, people fed themselves however they could, but in the post-war years, global culinary influences accompanied growing immigration, and in the Netherlands, a new sense of culinary celebration has begun to emerge. And that, folks, is the recipe for a history of culinary traditions in the Low Countries. If you will now excuse me, I'm starving. So time to make something lecker. Definitely not pottage or pike liver mash. Perhaps something with sauce Tot teens. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit wwwthe low countriescom This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio.